Hey folks, thanks for tuning into Concessions, where this week Dan and I will be breaking down all the ways we love Hayao Miyazaki's Oscar-winning classic, Spirited Away. Since Miyazaki has another future classic currently in theaters in the form of The Boy and the Heron, we thought it would be an opportune time to share our thoughts on what most would consider to be his magnum opus. It's a film I've actually had a lot of trouble fully grasping after a few viewings in the past, but Dan really helped me unlock a fuller appreciation for it through our conversation this week. Please come on back next week when we invite friend of the pod, Kate Eastman, to luxuriate in a conversation about the seminal 1970s horror film, The Wicker Man. That one was just tons of fun to record, and I'm really excited to share it with everybody. If you're enjoying Concessions, please give us a like, a follow, or a rating uh, wherever you happen to be listening to this. You can also find us online. I'm on threads at Jared Concessions. Dan is over on Twitter at Dan Concedes. But for now, please get cozy and join us in celebrating Hayao Miyazaki's incomparable Spirited Away. Welcome to Concessions. I'm Jared. And I'm Dan. And this week we're going to talk about the danger of perhaps enjoying a few too many concessions. Ooh. A horror film here we're dealing with. Yeah, lots of uh, transmutation and uh, all sorts of creepy little little creatures in this film. All sorts of grotesquerie. Um, but before we uh, get into this grotesque, Horrible for adults only, tough to watch film. Uh, Jared, what you what you sipping on over here? Well, this is a nice cup of coffee. A little <laughs> bit of behind the scenes information for our loyal loyal viewers, listeners, listeners, listeners. Usually, we we start recording these at about seven p.m. Uh, you know, in the evening time. So we're usually sipping on a beer or a bourbon or something along those lines. I've been doing ciders recently but it is currently about 10 30 a.m on a friday and i have a nice cup of joe here it's bad coffee it's from winco that i buy in bulk this is <laughs> supposed to be like a higher caffeine like oh careful if you drink this type of thing and uh i'm still very chill how about you dan <laughs> yeah jared is nicely let let uh let us push this because my sister came into town last weekend, so or yesterday, so I'm amusing her, but she's working from home right now, so I, I could slip away for a little bit of the real work that, that's going on in this apartment at the moment of podcasting. Um, I've just got this, uh, it's this local uh, beverage that came out of uh, San Diego. It's called Water. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't... Fucking nerd. It's it's really light. I don't even know what the ABV is in this, but like, you know, I'm pretty interested in it so far. It's pretty good. Uh, I recommend it. Yeah. My but, man, I go through lots of ebbs and flows literally uh when it comes <laughs> to my water intake. Um usually like usually I'm just like a hydration demon like being a making sure those around me are hydrated and and drinking, you know, 
150 ounces a day or so. Uh, over the last like week, I haven't been working. I've been at home just being a piece of shit. I've been <laughs> not. I've not been drinking enough water. Real dry guy over here. Yeah. So if you're listening to this and you are not properly hydrated, uh, take a couple seconds here. Pause this. Go get yourself a nice glass of some fine, high quality H2O. Mm. And uh, listen while you enjoy your water, please. I I also approve of this. Um, but while while they're going to get their cup of water right now, Jared, has anything that you've experienced in the last week really spirited you away? <laughs> yeah, nothing nothing really cinematically has done that uh, over the past couple of weeks, actually, since we last asked this question of each other. But I've been doing a lot of reading, like I I I'm usually want to do, and. The last last couple of weeks have been there's been some good stuff. Um, uh, just quickly glossing over, I've been reading some some texts about the horror genre that are more of you know a sociological bent. Uh, the big one is uh, probably the most well known work of horror nonfiction of, in that regard, and that's uh, Men, Women, and Chainsaws, mm-hmm. which was mm-hmm. I've of course been aware of for years, but Dan kind of reinforced my desire to read it and uh, recently, and I did read it and thought it was fascinating just the the way that she writes it was just right at the cusp of me being able to completely grasp everything without quite pushing the boundaries of like my comprehension which is which was nice i feel like it sort of expanded my mind a little bit without Mm. being an easy read um and then uh i also read uh and if anyone doesn't know that's sort of the the preeminent uh, feminist text about horror films. Uh, it hasn't been updated in like 30 years, but it's still really, really good. Isn't correct me if I'm wrong. Isn't that the book that coins the term final girl, final girl. Yeah. That was, yeah. that's how people, that's how people usually identify men, women, and chainsaws. I would say the central thesis though, across it's, you know, five chapters is that it seems that modern men in like post post like nuclear family, like, you know, post 1960s men have a stronger desire um, to see things from a feminine perspective, but men also have some inborn habits of maybe like some sadomasochism. <laughs> <laughs> and so like horror films make like, you know, uh, putting its audience in the shoes of a female who's being tortured or, or brutalized and to an audience of mostly men kind of unveils just, you know, what these like, like these kind of modern how modern males consciously or unconsciously want to see see a feminine perspective. And the only way they know how is through violence. And um, I, I thought that was fascinating. And I, I'm probably not doing a great job of really, you know, c- consolidating the main message, but that's what I got from it. And I thought that was accurate. Um, I also read a book called uh, the black guy dies first, which is exactly how it sounds. It's a, it's a, a history of of black people in horror movies and all the way back from early 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 horror to get out and beyond uh, the book was written recently enough that they're even throwing out the movie nope as far oh, as okay. for some examples um and also really fascinating things that i had no perspective on before things that had been sort of in my subconscious nagging at me of like how black people are portrayed in horror. And uh, this movie obviously gives it really concrete voice. And I I feel like I'm a little bit more of a, you know, uh, an understanding person on the other side of it. And then the last one I read is called it came from the closet, which Mm -hmm. is a collection of essays, mostly um, around uh, uh, the queer experience in horror. Mm -hmm. 
there's also other other chapters where like a person is only talking is just talking about um disabilities in horror really 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 plumbed the depths of various um kind of sociological issues kind of framed around how they're used in horror and uh uh, out of all of those, the one I recommend the most is Men, Women, and Chainsaws. But I, I need to keep going just a little bit because the the best thing I read over the past few weeks is the new book from 2023 by Rick Rubin, who, if you don't know who Rick Rubin is, um, you're probably not a big fan of rock or hip hop or popular rock and hip hop because he's by far and away not even close the most successful music producer in those genres ever. He's the guy who in the 80s was producing all of the uh, Run DMC albums, LL Cool J albums. He's the guy that got Aerosmith together with Run DMC. So he basically invented the the like rap rock genre, and yeah. and he's been really <laughs> dialing that in ever since. He he produced every Rage Against the Machine album, every Red Hot Chili Peppers album, a couple Slipknot albums, a couple Metallica albums, every single Slayer album. He did uh, Adele's most like big like biggest album. I think twenty one oh, wow. uh, was was all Rick Rubin. Katy Perry, one of Katy Perry's biggest albums. He's been working with like uh, more modern rappers like Ty, like Ty Dolla Sign and um, I think Tyler the Creator. Um, he, he's just he's just the, by far the most successful music producer alive right now. <laughs> and he wrote this book called The Creative Act, which is basically just chock full of good advice on anyone who is trying to create art of any sort. He doesn't just talk about music producing. In fact, he talks about music producing very little. But um, he gives he gives a lot of extremely important practical advice for ways to live your life and create as much art as possible and as good of good art as possible for yourself and for an audience. Um, he does veer into like kind of the touchy feely, crunchy, like spiritual side of things a little yeah. bit here and there, but that is um, minuscule compared to just the magnitude of practical advice he gives and. Honestly, it's like a Bible for an, any kind of artist. And there are very few people on the planet who have the street cred strong enough to dare write a book like this. And Rick Rubin is one of the very few. Oh, kind of like the creative gene, too, that you ha uh, let me borrow. Yeah. Uh, I mean, what you're, you're describing, yeah, you're, you're talking about Hideo Kojima's books. Yeah, are yeah. Like basically like movie and book and comic book video game reviews that kind of give some insight into him himself as an artist. This is not like that. This is, this is not Ruben talking about himself very much at all. He's literally just giving a practical handbook for anyone who wants to create. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. I more meant like someone who has the, the right to say. Like, yeah. Well, no, no I don't think, yeah, I don't, I don't think that I, if Hideo Kojima tried to write a book like this, I would probably call bullshit on that. Like, he, <laughs> like he's not, he's not uh, kind of ensconced into pop culture nearly as nearly enough or as much as rick rubin is mm -hmm. uh, maybe the person we're, we're here to talk about today like if, sure. if miyasaki wrote something like this i'd probably pay attention to it yeah or if like uh martin scorsese did or gosh i don't know i can't even think of very many people who are on the level in their artistic craft that rick rubin is There's and also very just few so people firmly so firmly having their finger on the pulse for decades now yeah in rubin's case but yeah, Dan, I mean, like, you know, obviously you and I talk to each other a lot outside of the podcast. And I know that, you know, you've recently really started hitting the gas on some of your creative endeavors. I strongly encourage you to read or listen to the Creative Act by Rick Rubin. 
creative act. Yeah. Oh, hold on. Because I, I put men and women and chainsaws on my to read list. And now I need to put that on too. Oh, man, um, I thought you had re- I thought you had read it because I know you had mentioned it before on the pod. And I, I guess I just assumed. No, I, I've heard it referenced a lot because one of my favorite horror pods, uh, Faculty of Horror, uh, references it a lot so yeah. actually i was gonna say that when you're like oh i'm not explaining it well i'm like well if you want a really good explanation of it just listen to essentially i don't know if you listen to three or four episodes of uh faculty of horror yeah you'll get like a tertiary uh synopsis on it yeah and speaking uh, of which i do still need to read alex west's book about the french extreme horror movement ooh, I've, I've wanted yeah. to ever since i learned about that podcast also from you but that's going to be on my list soon too okay so i got the creative act now on my to read list um Sweet. Um, my list is going to be shorter. It's just going to be one. I watched a movie that's out. It, it's kind of an interesting one because it's been sneaky doing well. It's one of these rare cases of a movie that's like kind of getting word of mouth PR that's building, which is like kind of hard to do these days, I feel like. Um, and it hasn't been released in too, too many theaters, but it still keeps chugging along and has been doing fairly well given the the limitations of its release and it's the holdovers. Um, I really loved it. I actually kind of, when I first saw the trailer, I was a bit like, eh, I'll probably catch it when it's streaming. Like it looks like it's sort of BT or Wes Anderson and that's, and that's fine. I'll probably enjoy it, but like, I'm not going to go uh, work my day around it and go out there. But just in the last, I mean, at this point it must have been out. What you think like three weeks now that it's probably been since its release date yeah it's December like first it, right now like that it just i just kept seeing so much love and so much praise being said about this movie that essentially not too too many people have seen just because it has hasn't had a wide or a super wide release so eventually i'm like okay yeah, i'll check it out and yeah it absolutely lives up to its hype paul giamatti is just as good as he always is um the i forget the young actor who's the the younger man in that but like he's got a great um his, or his debut is awesome. Uh, oh, the, there's a woman who just got an award for um, it was some uh, award ceremony in New York that they they just gave out a bunch. And I was yeah, you're talking about Divine Joy, Joy, Divine Joy Randolph who won yes. the uh, the New York Critics Circle Award over the weekend. Yes, uh, or, that or this early well, this week, rather. Yeah, incredibly well deserved. Um, and everything down, you know, it's the same guy that made the uh, film Sideways. So, you know, the script is like really, I don't know, it's, there's like a lot of wisdom to it, for lack of a better word. I wish I had a less corny word than wisdom, but like it kind of earns it in like the way that the characters are developed, the way that the dialogue is excellent. Um, there's just some great moments in it that I don't want to spoil for people. But it's it's also one of those few movies like I actually have a personal aversion to Christmas movies like 95 times out of 100 they're just gonna be corny schlock and that, that's fine if that's what you want to put on it's basically a, a step up from hallmark movies but this one like is set during christmas deals with a lot of themes that um are in a lot of christmas films but does it in a way that isn't like a hallmark movie or pandering and then i i don't know if you've seen these two where sometimes people go the other way where it's like all right we're gonna make a christmas movie but it's gonna be like fucked up about like <laughs> fucked up people to like stick yeah. it to these Hallmark Christmas movies. And then right. those come off as just like overly cynical and like almost trying to be edgy about it. And this one just because of the strengths of the character in every character in this film, like it, it completely avoids either one of those cliches. That's amazing. Yeah. It's good. It's good to hear that um, Alexander Payne's new movie is getting that level of praise. And I feel like we'll probably see it roll out a little bit wider as 
it starts racking up more awards and nominations. But mm. man, his career has been amazing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, election about Schmidt, Sideways, Nebraska, The Descendants, all of those movies have been extremely accoladed if I can use that as a verb. Yeah. Um, but his last movie, Downsizing, uh, was not. like That was a very poorly received movie. And really the only movie he's made in the last 20 some odd years that has been poorly received was his last one, Downsizing. So it's really nice to hear that The Holdovers is a, is a nice oh, return yeah. to form. He's, it's also like, it, it's shot, it's set in the 70s and they take a lot of pains down from like the aesthetic, of course, feels 70s. But like, I would even say like the acting style and the way the dialogue comes off, like, you could have tricked me into believing this movie was actually from the seventies. Oh, that's cool, man. It's, it's, it's been on the periphery of my to watch list and now it's right on the to watch list. And we're about <laughs> to, we're about to really hit the gas going into December on a lot of movies. I oh yeah. We got, uh, poor things coming up. Uh, the new Godzilla movie is apparently just mind blowingly good. That's what um, I heard, yeah. Uh, Boy and the Heron. Yeah, yes, yeah. Uh, great, great, great segue into today's the meat <laughs> of the matter today. The Boy and the Heron is coming out, and we'll probably do a quick hitter episode on that that you can look forward to. But today we are here to talk about Spirited Away, a classic, everyone's favorite. It's one of those movies I feel like, like no one dislikes this movie. It's impossible. But in case you didn't know anything about Spirited Away, it's directed by Hayao Miyazaki, written by Hayao Miyazaki. The composer, which I think is relevant to this, is yeah. uh, Joe Hisaishi. Hisaishi? I don't know. I'm, once again, parents are from Ohio. Uh, and uh, produced by Studio Ghibli. Um, but ooh, before, ooh, ooh, this is a, a gift. Oh, gif. This is a gift. Ghibli, gif Ghibli. conversation. Yeah, Ghibli, yeah, are you Ghibli. a Ghibli or a Ghibli? I'm a Ghibli man. Ghibli, I, Ghibli, Ghibli. I'm a Ghibli boy. <laughs> Oh, you a Ghibli boy? <laughs> oh yeah, you could, yeah, you could, you could jibble me all day, Dan. <laughs> I don't, I don't know why. Like, oh man, you know, I heard, uh, I heard those two. They're really jibbling over there. Oh wow, we're in a, just right in public, and at <laughs> Disneyland, no less. At Disneyland, no less. Um, Who would pervert uh, a nice theme park in such a manner? Well, I mean, Studio Ghibli is their rival, so I could see that uh, being one of their tactics. Um, but yeah, I'm gonna. Um, you know what? Just just for you, in the spirit of the season, I'll I'll jibble it up. I'll go Studio Ghibli. But yeah, I mean, in case no one knows about Studio Ghibli, of course, huge animation studio, pretty much the brainchild of Hayao Miyazaki uh, on the artistic side. Sure, yeah, on the artistic which is gonna be side. an important distinction as we talk about some of the some of the points in this movie. Yeah, correct, correct. Um, but yeah, Jared, uh, lead us off with like your um, past experience with Studio Ghibli films anime in general you yeah. know spirited away particularly you know peel back those old concentric sure circles. well I, I don't think it's possible to be someone who even has a passing interest in film or like a, a, a somewhat greater than passing interest in film over the last few decades and not have a fair amount of exposure to miyasaki's films or studio ghibli films at large um i haven't seen all of his movies just off the top of my head the ones that i've seen that stand out are this one uh princess mononoke um uh porco rosso um howl's moving castle mm. ponyo uh nausicaa there, there's maybe a couple more that i've seen moving castle uh, yeah i mentioned howl's yeah. moving castle i think but um 
yeah, I, I've seen this one more times than any of the others. Oh, Totoro. Oh, okay, yeah. I, okay, <laughs> never mind. I've seen Totoro more times because I have a little daughter, as you probably know if you're listening to this. And uh, back when she was like two, two and a half, I put on My Neighbor Totoro for her once they got released on HBO Max a couple years back. And uh, yeah, she would call it uh, everyone every once in a while. She would ask me, Daddy, Kappa, Kappa, Kappa. And I'm like, what? She's like, Daddy, Kappa, Kappa. And I'm like, oh, Cat Bus. Oh, Cat Bus. Yes, we can watch Cat Bus. So yeah, I've seen I've seen at least portions of my neighbor Totoro, like at least a dozen times. Mm. Um, and all the way through once or twice. Um, but yeah, that that is my favorite Studio Ghibli movie, probably followed by this one, which I saw back in, I don't know, 2003 or so when it came out on DVD. Uh, wasn't a huge fan. And then I saw it again uh, on the big screen at the Seattle Cinerama back in like 2017 or 2018. Oh, wow. uh, yeah, proper proper film projection of, of this movie with a big ecstatic crowd, many of whom it was probably their favorite movie, but they'd never seen it on the big screen. Uh, also didn't, wasn't that blown away by it. And uh, uh, watched it again just a couple days ago and took took notes and watched it very closely and i i I don't feel like i get it like i I gotta (laughs) say i'm probably i'm gonna this is like one of the gonna be one of the more extreme cases where i'm a bit of a naysayer on a really really well-loved movie um i i'm not sure if uh it's that i don't get it or not like right like I'm, i'm usually I usually hesitate to cast that aspersion on somebody else. Like, oh, you just don't get it. It's my favorite yeah, yeah, movie. Yeah. You're just not getting it. I'm I'm okay with doing that to myself, right? Right. Yeah. I, I'm hoping that this conversation reveals whether I just don't get it, or if I do get it and I just actually don't care for it, and that is actually an informed position. Um, and, and to be clear, this sounds like because this happened to me a lot too with a beloved movie that you're like, ah, I just don't get it. It's like that doesn't mean you don't like it. That means instead of a you know twelve out of ten, you're like, ah, you know seven. Yeah, where, where I would say like a, a lot, a lot of people would give would say this is a ten out of ten for for me. Yeah, for me it's like a seven, seven and a half. Yeah, what's like it's still good before yeah. you know the listeners find your address and bring their pitchforks. Yeah, yeah, and I also want to take this opportunity because you did put on the outline here that you want to maybe get an understanding of how. You know, we we relate to anime in general, and I would strongly oppose labeling this movie as anime. I think there's, I think there's a um, understandable instinct that people have to label anything that's animated and from Japan as quote unquote anime. But there is a huge, huge difference between what I consider anime, which is like a serialized, short form, manga inspired or manga. Ad- adapted series that has certain certain aesthetic pitfalls certain uh characteristics that kind of hold across many many different anime for several generations of creators now something like an attack on titan one piece uh dragon ball dragon ball z like any of that stuff i think is wildly different than japanese animated feature film or tourism like uh, like or or Miyazaki or I forget the name of the, the guy that did uh, your name and, and uh, mm. weathering with you but I think those folks are in a completely different it's not a genre the way anime might be like I think mm. this is just simply folks in Japan 
uh, have far more of a predilection to make serious feature films that are animated and for adults and for children. Like we talked a lot about this a couple weeks back on the pod about American pop where mm-hmm. Ralph Bakshi is like this singular American visionary who makes serious feature film cartoons. I think that's commonplace in Japan and that's different than anime. Yeah. I see what you're saying. I guess, yeah, I'm, uh, when I call it an anime, it's in the same breath that, um, any, I would call something a cartoon, like, you know, American pop is still a cartoon, but it's entirely different than like, I don't know, SpongeBob. Like they're they're right. doing two very different things. I guess I'm speaking of it more as in the medium of anime, if that makes sense. And, and you're just defining that as like a an animated piece of content that came from Japan, but with that particular Japanese style. Like, um, like you could almost call I could be so bold as to call like Avatar anime because sure. it's pl- it's playing into those styles, even though it was made in the U.S. Yeah, I can see I can see that perspective for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, that's interesting. We, uh, we can peel into that a little bit more. What, what about, yeah. What about you, Dan? Like, what's your perspective on like, however you define anime, like what is your relationship with it? Yeah. So I grew, <laughs> it's actually kind of funny. I grew up watching Pokemon like anyone else. Um, but, and this is the only anime I was really exposed to growing up. And what's funny is, so I would walk to elementary school at like, I don't know, 750. I, I forget the exact time, but what the 50 is what's relevant. So for all of my childhood, I had seen the first 20 minutes of every Pokemon episode and I never knew how a single one ended. And Why? so like, there's like this just permanent gap that maybe someday I'll go back and watch like the original Pokemon run and uh, and see the ending of all those episodes. But I remember I watched like, you know, the, the Pokemon first movie, but most of my exposure to anime was just via Pokemon. Um, I was not a Toonami kid growing up. Um, I guess I watched some Yu-Gi-Oh growing up too as well. But when, but then I hit this point where like, you know, you with, with uh, like Pixar and animated films too, like where you decide you're too big and grown up and cool for like these baby animated films. So that was right about when Spirited Away was coming out for me. Like I'm like, you know, preteen, early adolescent. And now I'm thinking like, Oh, I don't watch baby cartoons. I want to watch grown up stuff. Like, TNT, I don't know. <laughs> but uh so I kind of dismissed it for a while and then I certainly also fell into the trap uh like by high school or some if you ask me much about anime I would say it's like oh it's nerd shit it's for losers like I'm too cool here's a locker I'm going to shove you in it like mm-hmm. that whole attitude which um fortunately I I got around to spirited away on my own when I was really getting more interested in film because like you said like if you're even mildly interested in film, you have to check out spirited away. And I remember thinking like, Oh, this is like the exception to the rule. Like this is like the good anime movie and kind of left at that. Um, I think I poked my head into a couple of the other big ones and didn't really get a full appreciation until actually one of my, um, one of my coworkers at the first tech company I worked at, he was definitely like a, uh, a wolf in sheep's clothing where he looked like just, normal kind of jock dude but he was the biggest weeb on the planet oh wow just like you yeah (laughs) he took you under his wing and this is what came out the other side (laughs) yeah he like he uh he sucked me down the uh the old anime vortex and you know now i've seen like uh so specifically with ghibli i've seen every ghibli film that's out there um i've seen anything hayao miyazaki has made i've seen a few of the like core um anime series like uh, Cowboy Bebop, I saw Evangelion, 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 I forget. I think it's uh, Evangelion. 
mm, Evangelion. Um, you mentioned him earlier. I've seen all Sat- Satoshi Kon's films. I've seen a few of the other like big seminal um, anime films. So like I, I would say I have like a. I'm not like all the way in on like the deep cuts, but I definitely have all the like major ones I've seen and I can speak on. And like, I really love it. It's one of my, I definitely like Japanese animated films way more than American and Western style ones now. Yeah. Uh, where I'm much quicker, like, you know, 10 times quicker to see a Ghibli film over a Pixar film, for, for right. example. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's, and so this was always, has always kind of been my like, you know, point zero for anime where it's like the first one, the first film that I really took seriously and took the time to actually watch. So like, it's been interesting to watch it periodically throughout the last like six, seven years um, and seeing how I feel about it. And like, yeah, for me, it's only grown where I went from like, Oh, respecting it. It's like, Oh, it's like, I guess for like nerd shit, that's pretty good. <laughs> uh, to now it's like probably genuinely one of my very favorite films. So th- this will be good that I'm a proper uh, evangelist, evangelist for you here. Uh, <laughs> But yeah, the, that that actually is one of the first things I want to get into before we kind of get into the 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 film proper is the difference between Western animation and Eastern animation, and particularly I think people always compare Disney and Ghibli as like the two giants. Um, there, I mean, they even lean into the 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 comparison themselves. I think Disney distributed Spirited Away in North America, so like they do work together quite a bit. Um, but just even just the Disney Ghibli comparison and then blo- as a microcosm for more how those styles are different. Like, w- what do you think about the difference between like Eastern and Western animation in general? Yeah, well, I, I think that they at this point in 2023, they're probably more deeply intertwined than they were back in 2001 when this movie was released. I, I, I would say maybe at the time. I would have had a position where this movie doesn't feel like its design process was in the service of selling merchandise. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, you can probably spend an entire life savings on no face merchandise now. <laughs> um, but at the time, uh, you know, that those Western influences hadn't quite permeated into like the Japanese creative process. You know, I I think that this movie is unfiltered personal expression from one man who, and all of the other animators and designers and artists were kind of along for the ride rather than Western animation for the last 30, 40 years, at least has been by committee Mm -hmm. and uh, with a, a, a economic outlook in mind mm-hmm. you know obviously St- studio ghibli is also in the business of making money but they just happen to have an auteur in their ranks who prints money with his <laughs> unbridled artistic vision right yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. and um, i i do think that there's quite a bit of disney in even these classic studio ghibli movies and certainly there's a lot of studio ghibli influence in disney and pixar now mm-hmm. um I, I think there's um, I think the primary difference though is what I said. This is a, this is un, unbridled tourism where that hasn't been the case at Disney since the eponymous man himself died. Yeah, went went into his his freezer to be preserved <laughs> for later. Right. Um, uh, thankfully, that hasn't happened with uh, with with Hayao Miyazaki yet, uh, and he's still churning out hits 
even as of 2023 at the age of like 82 or 83. And um, yeah, uh, I, I think that there's no question that even if this movie speaks to you or if it doesn't, that it is speaking from someone's brain and heart directly into your eyes and ears. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that was kind of mainly what I was going to say is a big difference too. And I do wonder if you could say that early Disney looked a lot like Ghibli then, where it was one guy and his vision. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, recycling, you know, Western folklore and like mm. the gods and monsters that he grew up with and allowing generations upon generations of children to grow up with them as well. Although, yeah. what's... Yeah, and we, I think we can get this into this in the, at the very end when we start talking about nostalgia, because like, and we have the luxury, not the luxury, but we have the force of hindsight on Walt Disney, because now there's, you know, decades and decades between him and us, where it's like, you also see how he has this really narrow, traditional view of everything and how it bleeds out into his films that like, I would say we're still kind of dealing with today in yeah. our media. Or, or how, like, you know, little boys and girls, some of the first movies they watch are classic Disney movies. And those have lessons about what boys are like and what girls are like and what your place in the world is like. Um, and Ghibli certainly has that, too, just because anyone, ev- everyone has a viewpoint. Like, you can't avoid that. Um, but I think what's interesting about Ghibli and what what really strikes me in Spirited Away in particular and, uh, um, and a lot of his other films is they're not... <sighs> pandering for lack of a better word that's that's kind yeah. of a, i don't want to go so well, heavy-handed to say pandering well well, like, well listen like walt disney was like i want to teach these lessons to yeah. little kids the same way that the brothers Grimm or, or hans christian mm. anderson wanted to teach these lessons to little kids he had that torch paths to him he carried it um very very well through his life and it's kind of a conservative notion i would say that you could you you might be able to accuse Miyazaki of that to an extent, but if you know the backstory of how this movie came into his brain to begin with, it was that he just observed his friend's 10 year old daughter being, you know, particularly precocious, not, you know, questioning tradition, questioning like uh, her complacency, you know, within Eastern culture where, you know, he, like Miyazaki grew up with, with every female around him being utterly complacent. And then he saw this, you know, 10 year old millennial at, you know, uh, who, yeah. you know, at the time, uh, 10 years old, basically, um, rejecting a lot of these notions. And he thought, Oh, what if I just put that girl and just mm-hmm. surrounded her, just, just absolutely just blasted her with traditional icons and lessons and morality and just see what happens. Yeah. And yeah. Like that like is what sticks, what gets left behind. You know? Yeah. And that, that's, that would be, utter chaos coming out of like 2001 Pixar Disney. I I would say from what you're saying and see if this is fair from what you're saying, like I think Miyazaki trusts children much more than Disney or than Walt Disney would where Miyazaki didn't have a lesson, but he's just like, I'm just going to show them these things and trust that they can uh, glean what glean, whatever they want from it. Yeah. And that's why I think, um, you know, Chihiro slash uh, later Sen, um, I think that's why she might be a little grading or maybe a little bit um, seemingly out of place, you know, performance wise, animation wise at the beginning of the movies, because it's like intentionally Miyazaki wanted to present like a very realistic little girl and not, mm-hmm. not some hero figure that you would yeah. see in any Disney movie. Right. Yeah. 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 Um, which is funny because it does, it still does hit some pretty traditional like hero's journey kind of beats, but oh yeah, yeah it's with someone who isn't clearly like from the get go, like, you know, 
hands on their hips, like chest out, like ready to be the or ready to transform yeah. into the hero. And and even at the end, isn't isn't really even though she goes through some extraordinary circumstances and she kind of rises above what she thought she was capable of. By the end, she's not some she's not some superhero. She's still like a little girl with her parents who now just has a is newly invigorated, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, and I think that that's what I would say is another fair difference when you're talking about the production of this and like how this actual gets created as a cultural artifact is yeah disney it's no secret that disney is very interested in the bottom line and a lot of the decisions are made it's like what's going to appeal to the like they want to appeal to the widest audience as best they can as i think i've used this metaphor before like they, they make excellent pop music where it's just the very best of it is really difficult to do and pixar like has that down and you can look it up like they oh, they almost have formulas for how oh, yeah. to do it yeah yeah and it's it's fairly, I wouldn't call it rigid, but it is like something that you can find repeated over and over and over and every single, like down to the bones of the story where you can recognize a Pixar story, not even necessarily from its aesthetic, which you can immediately anyways, but from its script, from its structure, from the way that it executes everything where I, because it's coming, or um, I think that Ghibli films, like you were saying, is less concerned about that. I would almost compare, compare Miyazaki to like Scorsese, where he has the luxury of just being so singularly talented. Yeah. Whatever like idiosyncratic, strange thing that comes out of his head, he's going to be able to express it in a way that people like connect with and love. Yeah. So he can get a, like his stories are a, not all over the place, but definitely way less cookie cutter or like yeah. lather, rinse, repeat than uh, a Disney film. Totally. And that, that that's again, like even is, is apparent in the creation the creative process of this movie itself. Like if you, if you look at something like, like a Pixar movie and I'm going to point out Coco because Coco is clearly extremely in spirited away's debt. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was, it's obviously outlined and engineered from the beginning to slowly build into one specific moment to just tug at your heartstrings. <laughs> and the whole thing is like clearly by the numbers and uh, a lot of meticulous pre-production, you know, went into that. Whereas Miyazaki, he didn't even have a script when they started animating. He was just, he didn't even have like a, a, a like dialogue in his head. He just started drawing. And like he had thousands of, of cell, animation cells ready to go before he even invited any of his Ghibli cohorts into the animation process. The amount of labor, if you've seen any of like the, there's like two documentaries about him, like the amount of labor that goes into Ghibli film yeah. is obscene. Yeah, it's it's the difference between a writer who meticulously outlines everything and then kind of fills in the blanks when they actually get down to typing the thing out. And then uh, other writers who have some idea of what they want to convey and, but they just start writing and let it happen. Uh, Miyazaki is definitely uh, the, the latter where something like, uh, you know, his very good friend, John Lasseter at Pixar uh, or formerly from Pixar uh, is the, is the former. Mm-hmm. And uh, I do think, yeah, I, I do also want to point out though, that, uh, those guys had an artistic upbringing together. Like they are old friends and collaborators who have, uh, you know, John Lasseter is the one that brought Miyazaki into the Disney fold shortly after this movie. Mm. I actually think it was for this movie that Disney first got the distribution rights um, and, and put it out. I think actually John Lasseter directed the, the English language localization of spirit in a way. Fact hit me on that. I'm pretty sure he did. And, um, uh, I, this is actually one of like one more piece of background for myself and my experience with Studio Ghibli. I had an extraordinary honor of being at Comic Con 
the year before Ponyo came out and Disney mm. was, was heavily involved in distributing that. And so uh, I got to see John Lasseter interview Hayao Miyazaki in person oh, wow. live on stage for like an hour at Comic-Con that year. That's so cool. And that was a wild day too, because like that, that it had Peter Jackson there talking about his latest project. It had Tim Burton discussing things. Robert Denny Jr. was, was there, I think hyping up Iron Man already. Wow. Um, Denzel Washington and Gary Oldman were doing book of Eli that year. This all like Hall H was just outrageous at Comic-Con that year. But the main event was definitely John Lasseter interviewing Hayao Miyazaki. And even though all of those A-list Americans and kind of Western artists, um, you know, got, got quite, quite the fanfare. It was nothing compared to the ovation and just rapture when Miyazaki came out on stage and, ah, uh, you know, and, uh, and he was there, he was there really advertising his relationship with Disney, yeah, which yeah, is, yeah. uh, wild to me because he is so he like, you know, his whole point of view is so anathema to Disney's ethos. And like, uh, you know, he's famously, you know, uh, wasn't there to, receive his oscar for this movie because he was protesting the american war in iraq and oh wow um yeah it, it does seem like the 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 kind of the studio heads at ghibli on the business side kind of skirt around <laughs> Miyazaki's point of view as an individual and you see that actually play out uh, a few times in um oh i forget i think it's the never-ending man or the or some about dreams. There's two documentaries that came out, but one was him during the the creation of The Wind Rises, and you you do kind of feel that tension, where you see the more business minded people like trying to like, Hiyo, come on, I know, like it's gonna be good, but like, you got you got to do a little song and dance, please. Like you've done this before, you know. Come on, man. Yeah, yeah. And at the time, I wasn't fully appreciating the gravity of. John Lasseter coming out on stage in front of thousands and thousands of people and hyping up Ghibli's relationship with Disney. And I wish if I could go back now and relive that, I'm sure yeah. I would understand more just why that audience was so electrified. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I think uh, I, I, I do think though, just going back to like artistically there, there's, there's certainly like element, like aesthetic elements of old Disney that you could probably pick out. Well, there's yeah. no way he wasn't raised on Disney and influenced by Disney. Yeah, exactly. Like he was the perfect age to, you know, be a little kid as soon as like right when Disney was pumping out the classics by well, Walt Disney. And he grew up in the American occupation of Japan. So there's no way that we weren't importing that into every theater. Yeah, exactly. And uh, a lot of that really obviously comes out in this movie yeah, um, yeah. and his other recent work, too. Well, let's, um, let's start uh, diving in. into yeah. But I think like one of the first big symbolic moments where th this film and a lot of his films he's he's working really heavy and bold symbols that are like very clear metaphors that like yeah you know even a child can like subconsciously pick up even though like like the first one i'm thinking of is the parents turning into pigs where it's like yeah. children don't understand the you know the the soul sucking factors of growing up in a consumer economy like they're not like mm, yes that's a very interesting critique on consumerism isn't it but like there, there's like this just very emotive expression that comes with uh, the, you know, the mother and the father. They get into actually I want to back up a little bit because I thought it was fascinating that this all takes place in an abandoned theme park. Um, I thought that's also rife with symbolism that like you could kind of feel it when you're young watching it. But when you're older, you really start understanding it where this is like a simulacrum of traditional Japanese culture that has now been commodified into something that people can uh, into a space that's really just designed to suck money out of people so that they can have fleeting pleasures, which like 
if that isn't just this film distilled or this film's like thesis distilled into one symbol symbol, I don't know what is. Um, and so I was really fascinated by that. And especially like, I'm thinking what would the American equivalent be? You could of course think Disney world, but, um, but it would kind of be like if we had a, like a wild West theme park or an American revolution theme park or something like about our history. But of course it's like twisted to be something that's like, you know, whitewashed and nice and like easy to consume. And that's what it seemed like this old theme park was. And I thought it was also important that this theme park came out during a time of economic prosperity. And then now we're in, uh, we're at the end of the nineties where the nineties for Japan was kind of this like lull, like the, the party was kind of over. It wasn't a depression, but like this, the surge that creates an economy where you have the money to build a whole ass theme park and people have the money to go out there and spend money at like a, a Disney world kind of thing. Like that phase of the economy was kind of behind them now. So it was like Miyazaki kind of noting what, how fleeting this is, how fickle this is and searching for something with a bit more of a root. Um, did, did you pick up on any of that or? Well, yeah. 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 I mean, and like, obviously like, you know, when the parents, find that whole you know smorgasbord of delicious food and looks so that, good though it does oh god the food in in ghibli films or miyasaki films specifically always does look great um and we'll, we'll get back to the exact opposite of this scene that happens later in the film maybe 45 mm. minutes after this one um but yeah like, i mean the dad immediately is like no 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 we've got money we've got cash and credit cards <clears throat> it's fine like we can take whatever we want, regardless if it's being offered to us because we can throw money at it. And that is the way that the world works right now. Yeah. Little does he know that this particular amusement park slash bathhouse slash whatever the fuck uh, is not playing by those rules quite yet. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's, it's kind of a fun reversal where, you know, turning them to the pigs, that metaphor is of course very ripe for like greed overconsumption. Um, like they're like dumbed down to just like common swine, but yeah, I think that that, that what well the, the flaw in both the parents that causes this is like you said is like oh any problem can be solved or all of my desires can be solved by throwing money at it and there are no consequences to it as long as I have the money for it. Yeah, um, Miyazaki. Uh, okay, I got I've been, I've read so much of like of his interviews of, like around the time he was making this movie, and I, I just have to throw this out there that the interviewer was like saying this exact same thing, like, "Oh wow, what a uh, amazing, just like clear metaphor for what you were trying to convey," and like. Um, you know, they're pigs because of, of exactly what you're talking, like the excesses of, uh, you know, the way capitalism has bled into Japanese, uh, you know, uh, culture and blah, blah, blah. And uh, like, hey, what, what more can you tell me about that? Miyazaki was like, they're pigs because they were the easiest animal to animate. <laughs> they're, it's like, he's like, they're, they're so much like us, right? I'm even told that we taste like them and they've got those nice round bellies the way that people do. And it's <laughs> difficult to animate a giraffe or a zebra <laughs> so they're pigs <laughs> i'm like what well, dude shut the fuck up you know what they're talking about <laughs> but i mean part of me just thinks that like uh that he's sincere when he says that and he is more he's more talking about visuals and he's more thinking about the visual constraints that he as a individual artist has to draw something compelling and it's just that he is so he's such a complete person that any sort of additional meaning or subtext is just along for the ride in underneath his expression. And I, I think that's pretty cool. And, and you know, maybe that's totally sincere and he wasn't thinking message necessarily top of mind, but 
I don't know, man. It's 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 clear enough that I I'm I, I want to call bullshit a little bit. Um, well, and it kind of goes back to how you're saying, like he kind of started something where he didn't know what the completed product was going to be as he was going. And he probably started as like, ah, yeah, I mean, pigs are the easiest thing. And like, oh, it's kind of grotesque because pigs eat a lot. Fine, fine, fine. And maybe as he was like working, it's like, oh, yeah, no, 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 that really actually works. Okay, yeah, that's fine. Like, may, I can see that being the original reason, like, based on the way that his uh, craft works. Like, okay, pigs are just the easiest thing right now. Let's just get that on paper just to get it moving. We might change it later if we need to. And then after the like the finished product, he was like, "No, actually, this really works. We're we're gonna we're gonna roll with that metaphor." Yeah, yeah, I could I could totally imagine that. Um, but I I don't know. Uh, are there additional depths to mine around you know the parents turning into to little piggies and and what well, that might mean? I like the only other piece that, and I think that like, come on, Hayo, you you were onto something there where. Where Chihiro is talking about how they're sick and she wants to make them well. And uh, Haku, her her very, very cute river dragon boyfriend, as we all would like to have, um, he says specifically, it's like, they're not sick. They just ate too much. And like, come on, like, come on, Hayo. Like, you, you know what you're doing there, where it's like, it, it is almost complaining. Like, yeah, they don't have this physical illness, but they do have this sort of other kind of sickness that is yeah. causing the, their current state. Right. And it's not anything, you know, bodily or biologically. It, it's something about like culture and their spirits has caused this. Sure. And then uh, she is invited to work off their debt, like with her physical yeah. bodily labor. Right. Like, right. She, and, and not, not even like, uh and it's just any labor but like a like very physically demanding borderline debasing job right mm -hmm. and i that that's a good segue and kind of the next point that we really want to talk about is like the broader themes of 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 capitalism and, and consumerism and how that might be at odds with the spiritual in this movie i'm wondering kind of what's what's your thesis on that side yeah and i was thinking with a lot of the characters especially even the characters in the bathhouse i mean of course you have the real life people too but i keep thinking about this idea of like how do people get what they want? Like, how do you satisfy your desires in, you know, modern consumer, like Japan, especially at this point, is a very developed uh, capitalist culture, very a la the West. Um, and so the idea of, well, I want something, I should be able to get it regardless of like, not even regardless of consequences, but like just the fact that you want something is reason enough to acquire it. And if you have the means, it's there's no reason to question should I, it's just can I. Um, and that like a lot of the characters that get that like, cause problems in this film, I think they kind of have that attitude where there's, there's no idea of like, well, how, how do I relate to other people with my desires? How am I interconnected? I'm just like this single atomized unit and I have desires and I'm just going to seek them almost like predator like yeah. uh, consequences be damned. And I mean, that's it's a very relatable like living in 2023 in the West. Like that's that's a very normal ethos where right. it's just like, oh, you want something? Go get it. Go hustle. Go grind. Go like, right. you know, uh, in more extreme cases, like go step on people, get all the way up as high as you can. But I'm even thinking down to like. I think this film does it very well, which is different from Disney is this film contrasts it where it slows down at points. It's oh, not always yeah. trying to actively entertain you to amuse you. Like there are points where you're just going to sit with it and maybe be a little bored 
And like, that's yeah. not immediately gratifying. And that that's what this film I think is critiquing about. Like uh, th- this particular aspect of Western culture is that like any discomfort needs to be immediately solved right now. Discomfort right. itself is a problem. Yeah. Well, and, and in the movie, like with the, probably the moment that you're specifically talking about that made you feel that way is she's when she's um shihiro has lost her name she's already uh being called sen and she doesn't remember that she's called shihiro anymore but she does remember that her parents are pigs and she's there to like try to save them haku says hey come and look at your parents i found them and uh she leaves her quarters and makes her way like towards the pig pens but on the way we spend like five to ten minutes just like watching her wander and take in her surroundings and get a sense of the space more. And then she sees her, her parents and realizes she doesn't remember her name and her and Haku end up like, she like runs away and Haku follows her. And then like they sit down and she's crying and he just offers her like a rice ball and she eats it. We always watch her eat it pretty like luxuriously. And that is like the exact moment where what you talk about is really clear in this movie. And it's such a smart move to like, um, contrast to that moment with her parents gluttony where it's just like oh my god she's so happy and satisfied to have the simplest food possible in that rice ball Mm. and like it's something that's been shared with her willingly she needs it to nourish herself she needs it for comfort in that moment and you get to just luxuriate in all of those feelings for a solid like 10 minutes without like much forward thrust of the action and um, that is a huge difference between something like this and a movie I saw recently called Wish by the you know the Disney animated oh. studio, where there's no fucking way you'd ever get that a moment like that in Wish. Huh. That and that's really interesting. Uh, you got me thinking like the difference between that's actually not the scene I was talking about, but that's that's a great uh, great contrast where and the I think the big difference too between the parents' relationship to them engorging and seeing Sen eat the the rice ball is like that that food comes out of a like a a relationship it comes out of she has it's not transactional she's he's haku is not just giving it to her as like a oh you know i'll get it back someday i expect some kind of return on my investment or something like that is it's just two people who have a bond together and he wants to help this person and she accepts the help whereas um the parents it's literally just like daddy's got a credit card that's my relationship to the person whoever made this food you don't get to see uh who's offering this food it's just out there and so it's just the the only relationship that the parents have to anything to do with those food is all dollars and cents there's nothing human about it yeah right and and it watching the parents eat even though that food as you said earlier it looks very good it looks very appetizing until they start to eat it (laughs) and then it is like absolutely just grotesque just disgusting yeah yeah yeah. conversely Uh, a simple rice ball there's nothing remarkable remarkable about it at all and it's it's drawn very simply maybe even more simple than it would actually look like in real life mm -hmm. and but watching her eat it is like like I can feel it myself and yeah. it's, um, such a good food scene. Like we, mm-hmm. we, we need to do more food movies uh, on the podcast. Um, well, I did just watch delicatessen a couple weeks ago. We could do that one. Oh boy. <laughs> or raw. I, we want food scenes. The Texas chainsaw massacre. <laughs> oh, Salo. 
Great eating. Scene. Another that great movie. food film. Uh, I was thinking uh, more like Tempopo or uh, Ratatouille, <laughs> Ratatouille or Chef or something like that. But sure. Yeah. Um, but but yeah. Uh, uh, what I was talking about with like the movie slowing down is like the very, very now famous train scene, oh, yeah. which, and I think it's really interesting that that's become, especially in the West, that's become the famous scene of Spirited Away because that is such a not disney scene like that you could never find something like that in a western animated film because it's this is a film that's designed for children that then like slows down and stops jangling the keys for a little bit and you're seeing so many people connect to that which like i think is kind of a a promising thing in a way where it's like people uh even though we're like so inundated with like what i would call jangling keys kind of media especially growing up like that we that people experience that and like oh wow, this really speaks to me in in a very important way where, yeah, the, the, there's nothing going on there that like, like you said, it doesn't thrust the action forward. It doesn't, it's not like these big, powerful character moments. It's just kind of, you're just kind of watching, uh, you're on the train, you're watching the water go by and yeah. we're going from one place to the next. That could have easily just been, they hop on the train, it starts cut. Now we're in the yeah. next place. Let's get going. Oh, and it, it's so nice because like right when like when they're getting on the train, no face is like so pleasantly surprised to be invited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so sweet. And uh uh yeah, in spite of Miyazaki's best efforts, that scene has sold an awful lot of no face toys. Yeah, um that is interesting when you're talking about like none of it it's interesting that none of these character do seem like there's not the one every Disney movie has a one character that clearly they're going to wind up in Happy Meal like that's why they were they were designed and allowed to be in Happy Meals mm-hmm. um, and yeah a lot of the, the like really iconic Ghibli characters like they sell gangbusters on uh, merchandise but they never felt like that's where they were coming from they were just really iconic images and no face certainly from this one is one of the biggest ones and I really like him as a character too. And I think that's what's important is a lot of times these like what I would say, like the iconic quote unquote merchandise character, they're sort of tertiary. They're sort of just like slapped in on top of a film as like comic relief yeah. or just like a little bit of fun. But like, I think no face is so integral to this film, which I think is part of on top of his excellent design, why people are drawn to him so much. And it's, right. it's not so much that, Oh, he looks cool, which he does, but like people, feel seen by him in some way or they see parts of themselves in them or they they just relate to no faces sort of arc um as this like creature that is even more so than the parents even more so than every other character in this movie like you see a lot of like you know people going after gold or food or just whatever is chasing their desires but um they're still like fleshed out characters on the surface where no face is just that he's just desire he just only understands transaction. Right. But it seems this like really there's a lot of pathos to him where you, yeah. you feel sadness. You just feel the sad the sadness through everything. Yeah, that like he I, I mean, who knows what the backstory of No Face is, nor would I even want it. Um, that like he's gotten to this point where the only way he can understand being accepted and being loved is by offering people things, by buying it, by by material goods and you know I, I, there's plenty of people in especially in the u.s i can probably feel that way that that's the only way that they can be accepted is by showing like your status symbols or if you have the right clothes or you drive the right car or you have the cool place or something like that like then people will start to respect you and want to be your friend and something like that and that like really soul rotting feeling where 
it has nothing to do with you as a person or like your character. Uh, and like no face, you're kind of hollow. You feel see-through. Uh, so all you can do to relate to other people and to maybe earn what you think is the best approximation of love is just through status symbols and what what that does to you, you turn into a, a no face. You're no one. You're you're an interchangeable identity at that point. Yeah, which is um, like that. It, it happens to like basically everyone who works in the bathhouse, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, man. I, I the more and more I think like no face is like such an icon that man. If Disney had had their druthers, you would have seen no face plushies in Walmart, like a couple weeks before the movie even came out in theaters, you'd have the, the little, uh, the, the Susu Watari, the little sit monsters. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Spiders. You, you know, those would have been in a happy meal or, you know, like on the end of a cat toy or whatever to sell but you. See, that's the problem. No face never would have been designed that way. If Disney had their hands on it. Cause they would have been like, there's no way we can sell toys of this. And yeah. They would have been wrong. Yeah. We don't, we, yeah, we can't, we can't sell a disgusting mealworm in a Kabuki mask. Get out of here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I just, re- I've always really been drawn to the, the, the character of no face. Cause like I said, even up top with like the pigs where it's like, oh, well, this is a commentary on consumerism and the way that it sucks our souls dry within a modern capitalist society. Like children don't get nor care. Well, no, they do get it. They don't care about that, but they, they feel that where I think no face is doing that for, I mean, I would dare to say, like, I feel like a lot of people I know that they watch this, this is probably like one of the first times they've had to deal with like melancholy and like kind of sad feelings that when you're like nine or 10, you really don't know what to do with them yet. You haven't learned how to express them, but you're seeing it uh, on display for you and you, you you feel this uh, this connection. And but you don't really know why yet. And eventually you grow up and you kind of start getting it. But I think it's a you know, that's what the very, very best children's media does is it expresses these really difficult complicated emotions or even sadder emotions in a way that children can reckon with and it doesn't pander down to them but it makes them deal with it in its in its uh, fullness but doesn't but does it in a way that a child can reckon with you know yeah yeah totally um man where do we go from here? I feel like we've we've done such a good job of really digging deep, and we're like we've kind of t- just by by proxy we've touched on so many of the points that we intended to already. Like, where where do you think we go from here? Oh, I say we kick the doors out, and that's what I really love about uh, the bathhouse, especially from the Western perspective. Is like I oh I actually had this thought for a second. Is like is this like Cabin in the Woods, but for Japanese folklore? Uh, where yeah. Miyazaki just pulled like, all right, every little weird, beastie, creepy, crawly thing that could possibly exist in traditional like Japanese folklore and in Shinto folklore and just let's chuck them all in a bathhouse and let's just have fun with it, which gives like, I don't know, just talk about the bathhouse in general as sort of like a greatest hits and like kind of has its own character too. Uh, and as we were saying, like what, what this really is, is like the the crashing of modern sensibilities with traditional Japanese uh, iconography, attitudes, understandings of our place in the world. And what happens when they kind of whirl together? Because you're seeing all these like, you know, traditional uh, Japanese figures with very modern sensibilities. <laughs> and yeah. like you're seeing how like grotesque that winds up looking. Yeah, it's like if you uh, like if Disney had had the balls to make like just a straight up adaptation of a lot of those Hans Christian Andersen or like Brothers oh, yeah, Grimm yeah, fairy yeah. tales. Yeah. 
yeah, it hasn't been, you know, watered down because, uh, you know, because the creator thinks that kids are stupid. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, or like, I wouldn't even say stupid. I would say can't handle it. Yeah, yeah. Like if they think the kids are soft. Yeah, like, you know, you see it all the time with like, I feel like once a year, every year, there's some piece of media that every, every like weirdo member of a PTA in like rural Texas is like, won't someone think of the children? Why could the children cannot be exposed to this? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I, 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 I simply don't know nearly enough about Shintoism or uh, Shintoism, Shintoism. Uh, Shin, yeah, Shinto, I think. Yeah, you know, Japanese folklore, like a lot of these gods and monsters that would be familiar to Japanese children or adults. I just don't. I just don't. So I can't really speak to, I guess the the total uh, kind of combined impact of, of seeing all of this happen this like this who's who it does remind me though and i i can at least talk about the way that it made me feel um it, there's a there's a great recurring scene in a movie that you and i have really picked apart called paprika that also features like a literal parade of <laughs> of different kind of grotesque or odd or off-putting characters and in spirited away it, i didn't it didn't really break past my conscious sense of wonder like oh look at all the interesting designs and like look at that weird thing that's neat wherein uh the similar scene or scenes in paprika actually like made me feel on like like on guard and like i needed to protect uh. myself and the characters from the the per- the parade and the the music that played plays every time you see that <laughs> grotesque parade in paprika uh definitely made me feel a lot more activated than uh on a on a subconscious level or a primal level compared to a spirited away i it never quite lets me break past the like oh look at that amazing drawing i wonder if miyazaki did that himself and like you know i uh the, look at all the detail and every single thing like oh i can see every pore in the wood and mm-hmm. like uh I, I my my conscious mind's appreciation is far greater in this movie but like the similar parade of creatures in paprika made me feel something deeper well i think um see if i can flesh this out a little bit where i think the big difference between you know the the big uh you know, murderer's row of icons that come in that are unfamiliar to Western eyes. Like in spirited away, it's very grounded. Like what you were saying it like you see the labor that goes into how this, uh, this bathhouse works. You look at all the nuts and bolts. You spend the time looking at the, the grain in the wood. So you see like the, the environment that these characters, even though they live under rules that we don't understand, you at least see the results of it. And you see, like how they all exist in this, where I think I, I read somewhere, it's like, it seems like Shihiro just kind of walked in on an average ass day for this bathhouse. And like, to us, it seems amazing. But to them, it's just a Tuesday. Um, where for Paprika, I think the difference is these things are thrusting their otherworldly logic into the real world. And that feels threatening. Like they don't belong there. And it's very clear from the way that they're interacting with the, like the real world of uh, Japan in in paprika that's like oh this is a threat like i'm yeah my heckles are up like what are they doing here i don't know what rules they behave by and they can probably break them at any point where um yeah spirited away they're they're seen they don't go through the rules they yeah. go through the rules yeah. but there are definitely norms and laws that govern everyone's behavior yeah. and they yeah. stay within those bounds yeah and they're you know the those individual little monstrosities they're all 
they're all um, kind of confronted with um, the drudgery of their lives, like along with us, right? Like we're yeah. we're more seeing through their eyes rather than being assaulted by them. Like they all have, they all seem to be stressed out, right? <laughs> even like even like the the um, the polluted river monster, right? Like has. Uh, seems to have uh, a like a human set of rules that they have to live by or else even um haku who is sometimes a dragon is sometimes a boy is sometimes a river (laughs) even like he has like human wants and needs that that need to be met and sometimes cannot and sometimes he needs help with Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah um yeah and i like yeah i really like the tactility of it and i think that keeps it from from just becoming like, ooh, look at all this. Wow. Cause yeah, for all the the magic that's going on that they have access to, like most of this bathhouse is run on like, I don't know, like turn of the century industrial revolution style. Yeah. Uh like coal power, essentially. Like I think it, it's also I note or I noticed that too. Someone commented on that. Um, that the coal furnace that they're throwing in, like the little soot boys are throwing in, looks like a pig. Oh yeah, like, it does. There's no way that I could like, yeah, Hio, you knew what you were doing by making them pigs. Come on, come on. Um, yeah, you got like, the, the boiler man, uh, Kamaji. With yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sp- so spidery, spidery appendages. And there's something kind of tragic, and you kind of feel that loss. So this is like kind of like a, a fallen Eden of sorts, where all these creatures have clearly all these fantastic mystical properties. Uh, and this bathhouse is like amazing and like nonsensical, but like everything's so rendered banal where, you know, these creatures you could think of 200 years ago, maybe they were like, you know, these crazy fantastical, yeah, spirits like embodying, you know, rivers and trees and right. the rocks and everything like yeah. that. But now they're just like, eh, I'm just kind of an employee. I, of the machine turn or turn and turn and turn and turn. Yeah, yeah. I'm I mean, that's because I happen to have eight, eight limbs. <laughs> um, so yeah, they've just been rendered, and I can get into this a little further uh, later on the conversation. But they've they've only been valued for what they're useful for to turn a profit for. Uh, oh, what's your Alibaba? Not Alibaba, but something similar to that. Uh, y- Yababa. Yobaba. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Yobaba. Uh, you, you, like, Yubaba and Yubaba. Uh, and uh, her, her twin sister uh, Zaniba. Zaniba, there we go. Yeah. Um, oh, that was something I was going to mention too. That the big difference between, you know, both Disney and uh, Ghibli are dealing in folklore, and so one's dealing from a folklore that comes from a Christian context, the other one's coming from a non-Christian context, or more specifically a non-monotheistic context. Um, and I, Disney very much because it comes from that world, like it goes very much black and white. There's good, there's evil. There are forces of good, there are forces of evil. People embody them in some way, shape, or form. But that doesn't mean like good people can do bad things, but they're still good people. And the bad people, even bad people do some good things, is because they probably have evil aims behind it. So, like, all no matter what an evil person does, it's always bad, you know? Um, whereas with coming out of like more Buddhist or Shinto or like non black and white kind of uh, moralistic religions, these characters are all much more, I would say, specifically amoral. Like, they don't have one. They don't have some kind of higher authority that they're appealing to. And I'm thinking of the two witches, where they're just kind of like, they're only, quote-unquote, evil or antagonistic in this movie just because, like, they're in Chihiro's way. Yeah. Uh, I mean, well, and they're they're just, they're subject to the worldly need for for coin 
right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. That's really all that they're trying to do is they're trying to like navigate a system that makes it of the utmost importance to just turn a profit. Right. And they're in, they're in competition with each other, and and that gets in Shihiro's way. And you have this this you know this young gal who hasn't who doesn't have that as a point of reference, right? Like mm-hmm. she's got she's got a well-to-do father with the credit cards and the cash already locked and loaded. And that doesn't appeal to her. That's nothing that she needs. What she needs is to save her parents and to Mm. save her, her river. Yeah. No amount of credit cards is going to help with that. And like, yeah, every single, I think the river monster is a great example or river spirits, a great example of that. No face is a great example that the two witches are great examples where they're not, labeled as good or bad they're just people are doing things that are, could be perceived as good or bad given the perspective of the person that it's being acted upon um where at first like when you see first off i love the stink spirits the way i don't know if you know the river he, uh well when he walks uh-huh. like you think he has two legs but actually like a leg hits the ground it gets sucked back into his body then a new limb comes out mm. and crawls forward it's such like a cool little touch but um it's just kind of it's it was that fun where it's like he looks monstrous, so we're prepared to think he's a force of antagonism. Everyone's like freaking out, it's like oh no, like it's this guy. When it turns out he's just kind of like a uh, you know like a bear with a thorn stuck in his paw or something like that. Yeah. And once he gets pulled out, he's like ah oh, thanks, that was great. Yeah, um, <laughs> where is it? I'm sorry, it's another example where the same interviewer was like, oh Miyazaki-san, it's like brilliant that you like had like the source of the like the stoppage be a bicycle because of like all of these reasons. And like, like it, it symbolizes, you know, like this, this facet of, um, you know, the way that uh, industrialization is polluted, like our waterways and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, and like, how did you come up with that? Like, can you tell me more about the deeper meaning? He's like, yeah, I live next to a river that was polluted. And at some point they wanted to figure out what was wrong with it. So they drained it and there was a bicycle down there that was <laughs> stopping the flow of water for some one way or another. And the bicycle was very, uh, was very dirty so it took a whole like crane to pull the bicycle out uh and i uh, thought oh that would make a good drawing and so i drew it like <laughs> <laughs> i mean sometimes you know just the the symbolism of everyday life yeah yeah and and it just, just goes it just goes back to the fact that he's just such obviously such a sensitive soul and has such a a high high enough iq to actually be able to process all of that sensitivity and and retain it and and reshare it with the world where yeah like obviously this movie is densely thematic but again like i don't i think that miyasaki is is such a consummate artist that he doesn't need to put that foot forward he could just he can just interpret the world yeah he can interpret the world world through the extraordinarily powerful machine that are is you know his eyes and his brain and his hands and uh, we just we just get to glean all of this and we just get to glean all of this from it yeah 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 we're yeah it is like that's kind of the fun of it like i I wouldn't call this movie a rorschach test but because there are just so many fucking symbols like yeah different people are going to pick up different symbols and prioritize some over others just based on their own subjective experience too um, so I'm sure Miyazaki in his head has like some symbols that he actually like really thought were, were like very to the point that like maybe no one noticed or something just because it's like his own subjective right. experience yeah. of telling the story. Um, but speaking of like the the river spirits too, I thought uh, let's speaking of a symbol that I don't know if he meant it or not um, that Haku, you know, the river spirit and he forgot his name because the river got filled in for some industrial project or development or something like that, which like that one's 
fairly on the nose, uh, but that the way that he was being attacked was death by a thousand cuts, like those little paper demon boy mm-hmm. things. Yeah, um, we think are birds at first or whatever. Yeah, right. Yeah, and I think that's uh, at least an apt. This one definitely feels like a metaphor that he didn't like specifically reverse engineer. It's like, oh, I want to do something about that. Oh, death by a thousand cuts. Perfect. But it's like just a good way to express it that like, you know, a river doesn't go from habitable to inhabitable because we dump one giant sludge bomb in it. It's just like just little bits every day. And like people make make these small decisions that don't seem that consequential and they start adding up and they start adding up, you know, cut, 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 cut. And eventually you got a dead river that doesn't know its own name. Yeah. Well, uh, so Japanese people are in a unique position to have a couple of times over the last century, uh, seen, uh, just a dramatic shift in, of, of something big and dangerous, destroying an ecosystem and polluting it overnight. Yeah. But then they've also have the death by thousand cuts of after the bomb, we've got ti- millions and millions of tiny little Western figurative bombs polluting mm-hmm. the the riverways as well. And I think that might, might be, that would, that would be my interpretation of like, like Japan knows what it's like to, to have their rivers polluted overnight. Um, mm. And they also, they also know what it's like to have similar powers pollute their rivers over the course of a century almost yeah Um, even like less explicit of just like the american occupation the bomb like you know they've gone through the industrial revolution too um and so they went for in relatively quickly compared to what now are like major economic powers um i forget the exact date but the end of the tokugawa period but basically they went from feudal japan that we can think of when we think of traditional japan to uh yeah, and, and like an industrial juggernaut big enough to be the Japanese war machine in a matter of a few decades. Yeah. It's really quick. Um, so it is like, it's still pretty recent in the memory. That world that the theme park is like mimicking, it's not that far off from their recorded memory. And it seems like an entirely different world. And yeah. so to have that like quick and more dramatic, uh, uh, transformation, I feel like has to be jarring. And then, like you said, like there, and then there's just some, some major flashpoints also in their history that, that really, Oh, that was gonna be a bad pun. I was going to say blow up. Um, oh, that, that, that really, uh, that really bring it home, that really bring it up to the forefront. And it, I think that is interesting that like when you think of Japanese history, especially in the 20th century, like you do think of these giant, quick, like dramatic moments, but like, like with the death by a thousand cuts things, there's there's these small things that have always been humming in the background that are just sl- slicing and slicing and slicing away until you get characters like Shihiro's parents that become the pigs. Um, so like, and with a lot of things, usually it's like the straw that broke the camel's back kind of thing where, you know, eating one meal like that shouldn't turn you into pigs, but it's like, it's the sort of uh, state of your spirit at that point that, that, has happened from like a million decisions like that beforehand that has really caused them to like metaphorically transform into a pig. If that makes sense. Yep. Yep. Makes total sense. Um, But now we're, so, you know, I'm talking about pre modern Japan, pre industrial Japan going even more 120, 130 years ago. And um, this is something that's rife through Miyazaki's uh, filmography is this deep appreciation for traditional uh, Japan, for its folklore, for its way of life, especially like a more rural way of life. He certainly has a complicated relationship with technology. Um, You haven't seen The Wind Rises, but The Wind Rises is like the most direct version of that. 
and also his interjection of a fantasy like yeah ton, like almost i think without with the exception of the wind rises they are all reasonably described as fantasies and it got me thinking about um this philosopher named martin heidegger who also has some similar ideas about traditional culture about what we lost when it comes to industrial industrialization and and what like maybe we should keep and how that dovetails into the fantasy genre and it's something that has been um that has been kind of charged against the fantasy genre or noticed as a limitation of the fantasy genre is would you say that the fantasy genre, particularly here in Spirited Away and Miyazaki, is it inherently conservative? Is it inherently backwards looking? Is there something that we can glean from this today? Um, mm. Yeah, have fun with that one. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think I have too much to add there because I think it just goes back to like, I don't think, even though Miyazaki's reputation is of like a kind of set in his ways, old curmudgeon who like, you know, uh, rejects AI or re rejects the use of CGI or, or what have or you. Not I, hand drawing. Yeah, that's fair, fairly reductive to what he's actually sh delivered to the world. And this yeah. movie is the best example of it where I already said, I mean, he wanted, he didn't want to just aggrandize tradition. He wasn't just here to say old, good, new, bad. He was, he, he was open to saying, Oh, what happens if I put, a 10 year old girl who has, you know, quite a head on her shoulders and, and quite a precocious nature. What if I pit her against these things, what would happen? Mm -hmm. And like, you know, what he found was, was way more interesting than old, good, new, bad. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I don't know if that is inherent to like the fantasy genre, like overall, particularly in the Western world. I don't know if, if, uh, if you know Miyazaki is any more or less conservative than fantasy at large, but I, I do think that Miyazaki himself gets a little bit boxed into this conservative attitude that people project onto him. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Um, yeah, and I think I was really noodling over this one because I, I just brought him up, Martin Heidegger, and like he's someone who has great. It's interesting that he has really great critiques of modernity at the time, early mid 20th century and the Industrial Revolution and something I had mentioned up at top where these fantasy creatures now only were valued for their use value, for what they can do to enrich other people. And that was like one of his big critiques about the now we only see nature not as valuable in and of itself, but only valuable for the resources that can be extracted from it. And um, and nature being part of us, like, you know, there's literally something called human resources now, uh, like, yeah, that, like we're we're, you know, we're confined to just like, how can we deliver value and profit to other people? And we're not considered valuable in, in and of ourselves, like a tree is not valuable because it's a tree, because it's beautiful, because it's connected to everything else. A tree is valuable for its lumber. Um, a person is not valuable for their love or their character or their talents. A person is valued for how much they can sell, what products can they bring to the world, or art is not uh, appreciated solely for its aesthetic. It's how much, you know, how well can it do on the market? You know, I'm belaboring a point. Yeah. But um, what's really interesting about Martin Heidegger, too, is that he was a German and because he really liked, uh, similar to Miyazaki, he really appreciated pre-modern uh, 
pre-modern life uh, in his context in Germany. So he really liked like Bavarian culture, peasant culture out there, um, you know, getting back to the nature. Uh, uh, he certainly thought that there was something to do with uh, people in the land around them are intimately uh, tied uh -oh. and they should be intimately tied to one another. Um, I don't think you know where I'm going. Heidegger was yeah. a Nazi. He yeah. joined the Nazi party. He was at least very sympathetic to the Nazis and like, that that's like a it's kind of a fun inside baseball at least within 20th century philosophy is like people don't know what to do with heidegger because like he's got a lot of good ideas but they're like but i also he's a nazi so or he became a nazi so it's like how he's got how could someone who has pretty salient critiques on what is wrong with modernity or what at least its effects on us i suppose would be the better way to put it and how it affects the human spirit and yet goes along with one of the most human inhuman disgusting uh projects that has probably ever been enacted on on humanity and i think that's where miyazaki comes in in my head where miyazaki is now post-world war ii he was born in the 40s if i'm correct yep early 40s early 40s so he would have seen the very probably when he start just starts gaining consciousness he's going to be in occupied japan yep and so his viewpoint very different to Heidegger's is he's going to see what those sort of projects became like how <laughs> what happens when you do blood and soil kind of stuff like that and so I, th I think he still has the same demeanor he has similar very similar critiques of like what's turning everything into pure utilitarianism uh, turning everything into pure numbers x's and o's like what that does to the human spirit but I don't think he's yeah as enamored with like oh there's something uh, very specific to just the Japanese people, and they're the only ones that can understand this. I think he's more saying, like, there is a deep relationship between people and the land that they grow up with. Any people, any land, not, you know, you can mix and match, it's fine. Yeah. Uh, and we need to not divorce ourselves like that, not alienate ourselves like that, like we are now. And, like, there is something very val, there's something that was lost when we complete, I'm saying that from the 16th floor of a high rise in a downtown part of the <laughs> city right now. But there is like some deep connection that's inherently lost once everything becomes transactional and you can put a number on everything. Mm. And I think you're seeing those two attitudes smash up and spirited away in a way that doesn't say, oh, we just need to go back. We messed up. Uh, we need to all return to you know 19th century peasant life because that's also not true when, uh, you know, Nausicaa it has a lot of technology in there that's used for good. Um, uh, castle in the Sky, Howl's Moving Castle, especially um, the wind also rises. But I think it's like our relationship to technology and what we want it to do. Um, one great example that I was someone actually did a, vid uh, a video on Heidegger and Miyazaki, but how much um, Miyazaki loves windmills because windmills don't. They just go with the flow of nature. They're Ooh. not fighting it. They're not taking from it. And they provide us energy. But, Whereas, but does he know that they cause cancer? Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I, I'm I'll, sorry. I'll, do you know what I'm, you know what I'm talking no, about? No, yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> okay, okay. Because I'd, I'd love to see that that debate. Donald Trump <laughs> versus Hayao Miyazaki live on Fox um, at 7. But I, I think the windmill is an excellent... And there, I, I believe there are there's wind power in this too um or at least there's a lot of water power natural power in that sense like the 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 existence of water is pretty uh central to how this plot plays out too um 
but showing like a way of living that is much more attuned to like just rhythms of nature, not trying to impose ourselves on it um, and just going with it. And I think a windmill is an excellent metaphor for that, that he seems to go back to over and over or like he doesn't, he doesn't like uh, when he shows planes and I'm thinking of Valley of the wind now um, the, the good people or the, the protagonists use like gliders. They're using very light things that are kind of going along with the force of nature. And then the invaders are using these highly mechanized, massive juggernaut planes that are just spitting out all this, uh, this soot and ash and stuff like that. So I, I think that's very clear that I don't think he's anti-technology at all. I just think we have to have an appropriate relationship to yeah. it. Well, and that's a great contrast where you're talking about just how clear and black and white that is in Nausicaa. But then a little mm -hmm. bit later on is, in his career, he's making this movie, which deals with those same complexities, but in far greater terms and dives way deeper on what it's like when an individual has no choice but to participate in some way mm, mm, and like mm. hopefully you know make a do more good than than what they they consumed was bad right yeah and that's uh, very interesting i didn't think about it from that angle but yeah, yeah. and this movie's a lot more complex in that way than what you're describing in nausicaa mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um yeah it's like how do you like even though you can you know, i can hate that I'm in a, uh, you know, the 16th story of a downtown part. It's like, oh, I'm so like, you know, separated and uh, alienated from the the earth around me down here in Southern California, which is one of the most beautiful part or California, one of the most beautiful states in the country uh, for, for nature. Um, but then like you're saying, it's like, you know, whether you like it or not, you still got to pay rent. You still got to pay the bills. You still have to provide for yourself. And this is, we did not choose the world that we were thrown into, but right. we can choose how we navigate within it. Yeah. And and watching a very realistic young lady in this movie have to confront that head on and learn that for the first time and mm -hmm. appreciate her her plate, you know, her her station as a cog in that wheel and what she might be able to do to at least break it a little bit is pretty fucking satisfying to watch. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I guess I never thought about that in yeah, well, and there's my concession because I like Spirited Away a lot more than I did an hour ago. <laughs> so uh, we convinced me. Um, I, I'm I've now uh, well, that's a pretty big upgrade. I went from three stars to four and a half. Oh, look at that! Look at that. We we Spirited Away is an, is Spirited Away is a nine for me. Now. I'll uh, we'll call Ohio and let him know. He's gonna be so delighted. <laughs> He, he's going to be so upset about learning about Letterboxd. Oh, my God. <laughs> Especially even, like, just, you know, two fucking nerds going, like, hurry on our little app. We raised your numerical score a little bit. How do you feel <laughs> about that? He'd be like, kill me now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what would you, uh, if you doubled this off with something, what would you... Uh... Yeah, this is this is an easy one for me. And it might be a little surface level, but I, I can't imagine that we'll be doing this podcast for long without deep diving into this movie. And it's the movie that I think is the clearest debt owed to Spirited Away. And the timeline works out to where this movie was made like five years after Spirited Away and is clearly in great debt to it. And it's Pan's Labyrinth. Oh, yeah. Um, I... it's It's like... 
this close to just a live action adaptation of Spirited Away, honestly. <laughs> um, I, you know, yeah, clearly, wow. you know, we're talking about one one person's grappling with their ancestry participating in in you know uh 30s and 40s fascism compared to someone on the other side of the world who's grappling with the same things but all of the i mean just the the bones of it are the same the perspective of like the child is the same the even the point in history that it's sort of commenting on and the flux that happened is the same i can't imagine that Guillermo del Toro wasn't like obsessed with spirited away in the years up to creating pan's oh, labyrinth yeah. a lot of what i'm thinking about right now is kind of surface level but I, I bet if we uh watched pan's labyrinth as closely as we've watched spirited away this week we'd probably find an endless number of parallels and just straight up if you have not seen pan's labyrinth what the fuck yeah get, that, get that's that is one of the great great films of the 20th century or 21st yeah. century thus far Easily. and uh Get, get the fuck on it. If you like Spirited Away, <laughs> you're absolutely going to love Pan's Labyrinth other than there are some like pretty graphic scenes of violence that you know you wouldn't get in something like Spirited Away. But other than that, mm-hmm. if you can stomach um, some like pretty pretty bloody scenes, then, um, then uh, yeah, Pan's Labyrinth is for you and, and Spirited Away is for you. And a Mitch McConnell jump scare, if you can handle that. Oh yeah, one of the, the scariest creature in there looks like I, Mitch McConnell's identical twin, so there's that. <laughs> <laughs> the, gor- the goriest part of the movie is just seeing Mitch McConnell. <laughs> uh, what so about you, my, yeah. my pair of recommendations for my since I was born. Um, it was this film that I kind of feel bad that it it sort of became a meme film, at least among people that watch too many movies. Uh, it features a, a little donkey boy. Uh, EO. Do you remember that from like, I think it was last year. Oh, I remember it coming out and I didn't see it. So, like, it's, you know, it's reputation like, oh, the donkey movie. We're going to watch a movie about a donkey. But, like, it, it very, very similar themes to Spirited Away, where it's like you have, um, it's very similar to Al Hazard Balthazar for the people that also watch too many foreign movies, um, where it's like, it's this donkey uh, that is ex- being basically dragged through um, contemporary Polish society and showing, like, this, uh, this contrast between, you know, an appreciation of nature for nature's sake and the commodification of nature and what happens when the donkey goes from like something cherished for a living being to something that can be extracted for money. And I won't uh, spoil the end, but oh my God, it hits hard. Um, But yeah, it has the same concerns about like what's lost when we turn everything into something to utilize. And the whole film is pretty much straight from EO, the donkey's uh, perspective. Um, And it's I don't know how they got this performance out of this donkey, but he's got the saddest donkey eyes I've ever seen in my life. And then from before I was born, I'm actually I'm not doing a movie. I'm doing a book because I I just finished this book not too long ago. And it was while we were prepping for Spirited Away. I'm like, wow, this is like perfect that this is like my companion piece. And it's uh, John Weir's journals in the Sierra Nevada. So John Weir, famous conservationist from the late 19th, early 20th century. He is pretty much the reason we have national parks at all. He has this journal. I think one of his more famous single works is like basically it's a journal of him experiencing a summer in the Sierra Nevadas. He's with some shepherds that are herding these sheep to the Sierra Nevadas to, you know, essentially sell them at the end. And it's a combination of just like all the way up into the point of like just a 
religiously uh, joyous expression of Yosemite, of uh, the Sierra Nevadas, of Mammoth Mountain, of like just like the natural beauty of California. Um, and it's combined with like he, he just like throws in these jabs every once in a while, like noticing how like these essentially businessmen, these shepherds who are doing this only you know, to get, to get money put around the table. And it's like how they're like, not only not seeing like just the, the inherent beauty of everything around them, how they can't, how they're incapable of it because their minds are set on like, okay, how is all this going to benefit me? And he, and they're not appreciating it for what it is. So it's like on top of these, like really like lush. Uh, and I keep saying he uses like religious language over and over about, like he's also, uh, I think he's Presbyterian. So like he's going to use that same kind of language, but like he imbues very similar to Miyazaki. He imbues like every mountain, every squirrel, every tree with its like own spiritual significance as if they're like this own fully realized religious figure in and of itself. Yeah. And it's like, it's very uh, uh, rapturous for but, black. But members. then the human beings are sort of navigating it with more of a consu- like, like a capitalist consumer type of point of view, like what kind yeah. of from within. Yeah, yeah, and like, and he, yeah, that he was invited on anyways. Like, I, I could actually even see the other perspective where it's like, you know, you're just a shepherd, you're a cattle driver, you're yeah. getting these sheep from point A to point B. That's just this year's job, and you got this fucking nerd walking around with this little notebook describing like, oh the mountains sing with right. the anthem of angels i'm like john come on come on we gotta we gotta keep going come on <laughs> that reminds me of like like if there's if there's like a, a, a very very kind of spiritual uh like kind of optimist side to that like a novelist who kind of gives gives us a nice peer into the cynicism of taking like the majesty of nature and then injecting oh. human human desire into it and to let it bastardize it would be steinbeck Oh, I, I was thinking uh, Steinbeck too, but yeah. uh, Cormac McCarthy is also. Yeah. Very, oh, yeah. Well, yeah. So, yeah, McCarthy's definitely like the next Pokemon evolution of Steinbeck in that regard. But yeah, you look at like East of Eden, it's uh, very mm-hmm. much like a mm-hmm. novel, a cynical novel version of what you're describing. But then, yeah, but then if you look at Blood Meridian, it's like a fucking <laughs> horror show version of East of Eden. Yeah, it's like the, the, the sense of loss that East of Eden at least acknowledges that there was something pure there. Like Blood Meridian's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah. I was never there. <laughs> yep. Oh, man. Good times. Good times. Blood Meridian. Yeah. Um, yeah, but that about, uh, I think we've cracked this one. We, are, we officially have explained uh, spirited away now that uh, all the other people have been talking about it for the last 21 years didn't quite get it now we got it it's all done You're i think we did a very very solid job of restating things that other people have said thousands of times <laughs> but hey isn't that just you know the it's just philosophy and art discussion in general just a long conversation it's exactly right here we are right in the middle of it <laughs> well uh another Wonderful week of concessions uh, wrapped up here. I'm Dan. I'm Jared. And don't you worry, Daddy's got plenty of cash and credit cards. Sous-titrage
Ka ni mitsuke wa leta kala 